right, you admirable, but ultimately damnable, accursed. Welcome to the Curse of Politics, your one-stop political shop for 100% of the strategies and 70% of the swears. David Hurley here, and with me, our political panel, back to full strength this week. Jordan Leitnitz is here, thank Christ. Whoa. Scott Reed is here, and Corey Tanaik is here. Guys, before we begin, i got to throw out a listener comment from Apple Podcasts from IIYIPYG. I know him. Rates. Yeah, yeah, he's a close friend. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A fun and fantastical class of views every week with enough backroom curtain peeking to ground the analysis in the sense that these folks have seen how things really work. Plus, I had to go back and listen to Scott Reed's Mulrooney impression three times. Outstanding work all around. Scott, how would Brian Mulrooney thank our friend I-I-Y-I-P-Y-G? Well, I, I am reminded that your reference to me... Uh recalls the admiration of many Canadians who watched my time in office uh, with amazement uh, that uh, a government had the courage to take on the great challenges of the day to uh, set forth upon the horizons and uh, place place into our uh, our national architecture the standards and the foundations that would re- generate prosperity for a million. So I thank you, I.I., and the rest of your... Uh, strange name and uh i wish you the very very best (laughs) all right here's the rundown this week it's all liberals all the time really we'll dive into the caucus meeting the housing and other initiatives announced there and what the opposition responses were our cursed clipping stays with the theme at shannon proudfoot's deep dive in the globe on the seemingly everlasting bond between prime minister trudeau and his chief of staff katie telford and then it's the great gordon pinsent the harbinger of our hey yous. Corey, Jordan, and Scott, it is great to have you all back. How are you today? Doing great. So good. So good. Good to, you. Good to have you back, Jordan. Yeah. Thank you. Just like Slim in- Shady. She's back. <laughs> Look who's back. <laughs> right. I was in BC last week and and guys, it was so refreshing. No one gives a shit about federal politics out there. It's beautiful. There's oceans, there's whales, and uh, and and the Rockies, like, nothing passes. It was so wonderful. Would recommend you know, it. You know, the polls tell us that they're paying a little bit of attention to federal politics and not to the advantage of either the fucking NDP or the Liberals. There's some minds changing out there, so there must be some people paying some attention. It's okay. A lot, the, of, a lot of reasonable The enduring love for there. the EB government is, uh, <laughs> is enough to give me consolation, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, though they had a little noise this the last couple of days. Yes, they did. Um, yeah. All right. So uh, let's. Uh, hey, wait, 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 wait. Before what, we leave, Evie, I just want to make this drive by sort of slam and uh, get Jordan's uncomfortable reaction. Everyone says he's a complete asshole. Is that true? Oh, I don't know. I've never worked with him personally, but I would say that's not at all a disqualifying quality for office, clearly. So <laughs> I, I hear you. I just like people every time I talk to a friend who's a new Democrat and his name comes up, they go, ah. well, like, there's a little bit of a populist bent in him. And I'll, I'll just make this passing comment. Like when the conservatives have done best in British Columbia at the federal level or conservative parties, the reform party in the Canadian alliance, like with it was Preston Manning. Uh, in 93, and then, uh, you know, went down a little bit in 97. But the high watermark for conservatives, I believe, is Stockwell Day uh, under the Canadian Alliance, uh, which is, you know, you were speaking about reasonable version. people in British Columbia. 
Uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, <laughs> they're coming to the right conclusion. I can see, I can see, you know, when you, you look at, at, at Polyev, I can see why he is doing better there. Uh, like, you know, he is closer, I think, to that framing and, and, and that sort of sensibility. But I think for Horgan and EB, there are elements of that kind of populism in them as well. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not shocked. I think, I, I, I think it's not that, uh, BC has changed in any way here. I think it's that there are people who are, are providing a, a, a reflection of something that, that voters have traditionally responded well to. You know, we gotta lay out them say, giant radish it up out there is Kevin Falcon. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Falcon ripping it up out there. Ripping the guy is up. the guy is going to preside preside over the death of that political party. Richly deserved. Very well could. Yeah. Yep. Does that mean that the liberals have died if they change their name before they die? It's like a resurrection. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, uh, the comeback uh, won't take. It'll take longer than three days for them to rise. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Okay. The NDP is really firmly rolling the stone in front of that particular. <laughs> All right, you guys. It's been a pretty big week in Canadian politics at the federal level. In the last seven days, we've had the Conservative Convention, the PM's trip to India, where Canada-India relations appear to have hit the skids, by the way. Uh, the Liberal Caucus meeting, including a bunch of announcements, a housing proposal from Polyev, a big Canada 2020 Tony Blair fire for progressives to keep warm around, and a showdown with grocery CEOs today. Did I miss anything? I think that's the highlights. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start by focusing in on the, the new trailer cars. for Loki 2. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of excited. They got to get back on track, the MCU. Anyway, <laughs> that's not as relevant. <laughs> but interesting Speaking nonetheless. Speaking of back on track. Yeah. Let's start by focusing on the Liberal Caucus. From my point of view, two things of note. First, lots of critical talk about the PM and the PMO going into the meeting, none coming out. Whatever else happened in that meeting, there was clearly some talk about people pissing inside the tent and uh, and uh, cleansing of that uh, attitude. They were all singing from the same hymn book at the end. The second, the announcements. Two on housing and one on food prices. The meeting with the grocers is, as Corey said yesterday, and by the way, I almost wanted to go through the screen when uh, you guys all claimed they were responding to your question period panel. The government, of course, they're responding <laughs> to the curse of politics panel, right? Particularly Jordan, you know. Um, Clearly, yeah. Um, the meeting with the grocers is, as Corey said, bullshit theater, but it may be effective theater. Personally, I don't see the meeting's going to be with Champagne and Freeland, and I don't see them as convincing populists. And this is clearly a populist uh, exercise. Um, but may the announce housing announcements made me curious because. First, the HST idea has been sitting around since the Liberal platform in 2015. Second, the aggressive use of the Housing Accelerator Fund by Fraser just illustrates how useless Hussein was in that role, because they could have been doing this a long time ago. But Hussein's last act was to pen an op-ed saying, don't blame the municipalities for this. And immediately, we're blaming the municipalities um, for this. More importantly, though, one of the advantages of government is the ability to harness the bureaucracy and power to put together plans that actually make a difference and implement them. And the announcements last week didn't sound like a plan that was part of a thing that was going to solve this problem. They just sounded like announcements that were thrown out uh, to say, get something out there and to be seen like you were getting something 
out there. Jordan, have I got that wrong or did they sort of miss that? Yeah, I would say I had the same question that you did. And and the way I, my thought as I saw the trio of announcements was, uh, you know, and I've got, I think, critiques of each one individually that basically boil down to too little too late in the game. Not that Not that it's too late for their numbers to change, but that in the face of the problems that have really been left uh, for so long under their mandate, I think, I think they measure up uh, not so great next to the challenge, but is it a floor or a ceiling in terms of their policy offer on these issues? And if this is, if this is like their best shot coming out of it uh, to try to have sort of a full frontal attack on what Polyev has been putting forward, I'm not sure it's going to carry them that far. I mean, the measures in and of themselves, each individually are pretty weak. The, the GST off the construction, as you mentioned, this has been on the books since 2015, which immediately begs the question of why it's taken eight years to enact it. Um, so even if it will have, a, you know, even a mar marginal positive impact on the construction of rental housing, that's also not going to come for years down the line in terms of the availability of housing. So it doesn't really do anything to help people in the immediate and it underscores years of inaction. So I think there's certainly some mixed messaging there that makes it not such a clean hit for them. On the groceries, uh, I think this is probably the smartest of the bunch in terms of, of them actually choosing uh, an enemy personalizing it a little bit like god galen weston is just doing more for canadian politics than almost anybody else these days and and i think it's a smart it's smart to go in this has been singh's territory and to, to not let him have that space for them to try to claim that ground is really good but at the end of the day it also leaves them vulnerable because this is going to be a meeting about about the inflation and food prices and and sort of they're tilting the issue towards competition which is not necessarily going to result in anything concrete in terms of lowering grocery prices. So you've set yourself up with some high expectations for what's effectively a meeting where they're going to speak sternly to Galen Weston. So that does also leave an opening for Singh to come in, uh, as you'll probably see him do today with his legislation, and try, try to drive a bit of a harder wedge. And then the last piece, I can see Corey dying to get in here, um, you know, the housing announcement. So on the housing accelerator fund, this is what the fund was supposed to do. And the fact that they dress this up as unprecedented and the greatest thing since sliced bread, like this is another example of really uh, setting a trap for themselves to fall into on the communications front. So the expectations are sky high. Uh, you know, I imagine that this was many months in the making, not an easy thing to pull off with the municipality. So unless they have like dozens of these in the bag ready to roll out, bam, 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 um, I think. I think that the benefit is really going to be minimal. So if this is all they've got, it's not enough. What what I saw coming out of the, the retreat, I, I think on the positive side, and the most important thing was like, it's alive. There were some signs of life. There was a, there was a spark uh, animating the group, which is, I think, more than we could, we could say coming out of what was just an incredibly difficult summer for the Liberals entirely self-inflicted. So that's significant. I don't read a whole lot into the grumbling before the caucus and the lack of grumbling to media after the caucus. That's pretty normal. So by all accounts, they closed the door and they actually let backbench MPs talk to the PM. That's going to that's going to take some steam off right off the bat. That would be normal. I think I think the real test is obviously going to be like two, three months from now to see if any of these changes are lasting. Um, but what we are still missing and what they're still missing 
is is a cohesive story, a central narrative that really puts Canadian voters at, at in the middle, at, in the center of that story, and makes a clear match between the problems Canadians are experiencing and what the government wants to solve. Like you can see, they're trying to put it together, but but the click has not yet happened. Corey. Uh, well, there's there's lots I want to say around this. I, I agree with a lot of what Jordan just said. Um, I, I do think the the gross. I will say the grocery store stuff probably got the biggest bang, you know. And I think that's what you mean, Jordan. Like in terms yeah. of of effectiveness. But I also agree with what you were saying that you know this the, the, there's a spark there, but it could be Frankenstein's monster that they're waking up. Uh, and uh, you know, how, is it, how does it end differently than Sing's meeting with those grocers did? Like, uh, does the government have well, an or else? Or well, well, they, well, they, they they have a number of or else's. Like, they could do uh, you know a profit tax. They could strip profits off them, uh, uh, you know, in a in a targeted way. Uh, but I think it 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 leads to a bunch of secondary questions that that just feed Polyev. Uh, so if we want to look at things that are driving the price of groceries up. Uh, carbon tax, please come forward, take a bow. Like this is something that goes directly on the bottom line of just about everything you buy, but food in particular. Um, and I also think it, you know, and, and maybe this is a bit uncomfortable for, for Paul Evan doesn't help him, but it certainly doesn't help the liberal government. Uh, and if you were to look at, you know, where is the big gap between prices that Canadians pay for certain food items and those that most people in the rest of the world play, especially Americans, it comes back to supply management and paying, you know, 4x the amount for, for you know, uh, uh, chicken or, uh, you know, uh, so so if you're, you're looking at poultry and, and uh, dairy products, you know, supply management uh, hyperinflates the cost of those food items for regular consumers. And it's entirely. Have you ever found a political party government. against supply management, Corey? Uh, well, it almost was going to be the Conservative Party of Canada when uh, uh, when Max Bernier nearly lost. Now I think it's just the PPC. Yeah. But uh, but you know, but it does like the, the the criticism is still there. Like it's not like the federal government is has no power in this. I think there there were smarter things for them to go on and talk about, and I'm going to roll one of them out for you right now. Because uh, I, I think you're seeing some pressure from the provinces on it, and I don't understand why they haven't done this. Because it, it, you know, I think it doesn't cross the line uh, in terms of direction. But they should be calling on the governor of the Bank of Canada uh, to re-examine whether or not two percent is the right number in terms of baseline for inflation, and to make a public justification for uh, for why it should stay that or whether it should change because I think that debate is going on out there. And I think if you want to talk about things that are actually going to do something uh, for, for regular middle-class Canadians uh, around mortgages, around, uh, you know, housing starts, a whole range of things, it's the inflation, it's the interest rates. And so I, I, you know, I've heard a lot of smart economists. I know, you know, you get uh, two economists in a room, you get two totally different opinions. They can both have Nobel Prizes. So, like, there is a lot of room for debate around this stuff. Why is there no debate on this? Like, I'm hearing a lot of debate in, in, uh, in smart circles as to whether or not we don't have a couple of points of baked in inflation around supply chains. I think, you know, last week there was like 58 warships circling Taiwan and like 170, you know, fighter aircraft. 
And, you know, we've got major, major conflict continuing in, in Ukraine with, you know, millions of square kilometers that are mined and, and basically out of agricultural production. We've got three of the four ports that deliver food from uh, Ukraine, basically look like Berlin in 1945. So, you know, why aren't we having a conversation around that? They could order that conversation to happen. I think it would look like they're doing something on the economy and on the right side of that issue. But it's crickets. It's crickets. And uh, and inertia. I don't know. I don't understand it. Fresh data. You hurly burlyites know there's nothing I like more than sinking my teeth into compelling new numbers. So just in time for the fall season, and pumpkin spice showing up in places pumpkin spice has no business showing up in, I present to you StatsCan's latest and greatest labor productivity measure. Some context first. For weeks, I've been talking about the hundreds of billions of dollars our presenting sponsor, TELUS, has been investing in wireless and wireline infrastructure and innovation. How it's critical to the continued growth and future success of the Canadian economy. Well, as it usually is in my world, the proof's in the data. Labor productivity is a key measure of economic success because it puts the lens on the amount of goods and services produced per unit of labor input. Decent news, StatsCan reports that over a 10-year period from 2012 to 2022, Canadian labor productivity increased 9.5% across all industries. Much better news, during the same period, labor productivity in the telecommunications industry more than doubled that growth, clocking in at 19.5%. Here's what that means. Canadian telecom companies like TELUS have been a leading driver of economic growth in this country. In fact, they've been propping it up. In TELUS's case, investing in and innovating technology that improves education and healthcare, produces a more efficient, sustainable food supply, and grows business and employment opportunity. So why on earth would we want to stymie all that good stuff? I mentioned it last time. There's the specter of an uncertain regulatory environment out there. Combined with potential policies or regulation, like mandated regimes that put pressures on facility-based carriers like TELUS, dramatically limiting their ability to invest and drive economic growth. So something's got to give. The center, as they say, will not hold. Is it really worth taking that kind of risk with our economy? More next week. You know, Scott, Corey, Corey raises a point that I've been thinking about, which is, and I don't, you know, go on and say whatever you want to say about the caucus meeting and all that. But, you know, <clears throat> the government has pretty limited resources right now to address some of these things. And do they want to be applying all of them to an issue like housing where they're never going to get a win out of it? Or do they need to find a way to get this issue off the headlines, but you save their powder for another issue on which they're playing offense? Well, uh, the problem is this isn't a chalkboard. This is real life. So they don't get to just draw the play up as they prefer it. And they're going to have to do more than one thing at one time. And they're going to have to manage uh, the electricity that's rolling off of the housing file and appear to finally be responsive and all of that at the same time that they try to um, take advantage of the calendar that's available to them, apparently, thanks to the NDP, that allows them to try to procure a different set of issues upon which they'll ultimately be judged and even try to manipulate the campaign to come into something that's a referendum on an issue as opposed to a referendum on Trudeau. Because with a referendum on Trudeau, I don't think they're going to like the fucking outcome. Um, and I'm not pissing on the prime minister. I'm just saying that's the reality of these polls. And they may, they may obviate, but they're not going to reverse. And so 
when I look at the caucus, I see a bunch of things, um, and some of which I agree with. Although I think I think I I, I think that Jordan and, and Corey are both being too dismissive of of, of some top line stuff. And um, so, first of all, I agree with you, David. Like it's easy to say, oh, you know, it's no big deal, whatever. It's kind of predictable. They went in bitching, but they came out singing from the same hymn book. That's there's nothing there's nothing inevitable about that. And there were there there were real conditions here. For a continued narrative, which coming out of Ottawa and coming out of the national, you know, the the, the 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 parliamentary press gallery, you know, if there had been people taking hard swings after caucus, that 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 generates almost all the news stories, right? Like, and it can eclipse stuff like that pure ankle biting bullshit politics, internal civil war sort of stuff can completely overwhelm uh, things you actually want to talk about. So I I think the road untraveled is an important victory for them, uh, and I do give them credit for that. Um, I, I really think, um, that we shouldn't overlook, and I have my criticisms I'll come to, but I don't think we should overlook the importance after this absolute fucking disaster of a summer of, you know, of them looking like they're finally doing something. They're responding. They're actually having a substantive specific reply to something out there. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know that that batch of announcements, um, particularly obviously the uh, the GST and, and the grocery. I mean, it's kind of like the political equivalent of um, you know tapping on the pipes in a stranded submarine. It's like holy shit, ping, ping, <laughs> fuck! The government's down there. They're alive. I think they're alive. There's signs of life for a little while. Jesus little Christ. While. Maybe we can get them back to the surface. We might be able to save these people. Um, and, you know, that's not unimportant because um, it was a pretty bleak uh, just riding in the dark submarine to the bottom of the goddamn San Andreas Fault kind of summer for them. So I, I think that's important. My and I, and I also, by the way, I, I, we can dismiss it as horseshit theater and we can say, oh, you know, this and that. There's no fucking way. There's no fucking way that beating up on the grocery store CEOs isn't a good idea. And there's no way that there isn't, so to speak, milk in that cow. And there's no way that they risk in any way that by raising these issues, these they, <laughs> they somehow reward. Sing, give me a break. Like, when we say, oh, well, this is Singh's issue, in whose world? Like, talk about our noses being too close to the window pane. Nobody in the real world is conscious of what Singh has had to say on this. The ADP think that they own this issue. They don't own this issue. And, like, you know, I've just invited David Lewis here to come and talk to you about how completely overwhelmed <laughs> and eclipsed Singh could easily get on this issue. So, um, I just, I really... I think all that's to the good. Now, what is my fundamental core criticism? And there, and I have some. Um, it's, I think it comes down to uh, PMO communications. And and I'm sorry if that's unfair from the outside, not being on the inside. And I know as a comms director for the PMO that, you know, and Sir Corey's had the exact same role. You take a lot of shit. Uh, and I hate it when people say we don't have a, we don't have a substance story. We have a comms problem. But when like uh, two specific things, one, uh, that housing accelerator announcement, um, it was so pre-hyped, so badly preconditioned, so over preconditioned. It was ridiculous. It was that he's going to, the minister phrase, minister phrase is going to be come forward with an announcement that is going to shatter our perceptions of the physical mechanics of the universe, that it's going to alter <laughs> reality as we understand it. And it was just so frustratingly amateurish in terms of hyping that thing up 
when, you know, an understatement on it and a little backspin as opposed to forespin could have really turned that into a much more of a winner. Look, you know what? You're hearing fucking Paulie have talk about this. We've told you we've had this device. Forget what we call it. Housing accelerator, management consultant, horse shit fucking label. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Take that name out to the middle of the lake and drown it. But like, we're going to use the power of the federal government to actually mo- like muscle municipalities into changing the way that they zone. That's a good thing. And by the way, you could also say, well, Polyev can bitch and moan about the fact that he's been talking about it on his own. But you know what? We've trumped him here. Okay. Like we, so, and so that was badly done. The other thing is, and it's your point, David, and I've been harping on this for days. They, I'm glad that they played some cards. I'm glad they came out on the ancient stuff. I'm glad they did, but they've got to put this thing and Jordan made the same point. They've got to put this thing into a coherent story. People will not remember specific measures, even important ones. And they got a nice story today about how home builders are saying this will make a difference and all. But they've got to create persistence, right, uh, on this issue. They have to create a fundamental core narrative. Most importantly, they have to persuade people we have a plan. And then once I have a plan, it doesn't have one piece. Right, it has a bunch of pieces. It's not just going to affect right the ability of 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 builders to economically, with some sense of financial reward, now build rental housing. But then I'm also going to do with I'm going to deal with financing tools and instruments that allow people who are 25 years old to have the hope that they can scrap together a, a down payment. By the way, on the other end, I'm going to talk about how we deal with municipalities and making certain that we get to like have an integrated plan, have it make sense. I'm not so foolish as to believe that everyone is going to follow every element of it, but people like to know that there's coherence. And then that creates an expectation that you will, over the course of the fall and the spring, fulfill on this. And you can back into it and you can condition the media to report on this as a continuing persistent effort of the government none of that was there there was no sense of story it was literally a seizure of announcements it was just a throbbing thrashing body that said jesus christ right here's kind of like there's bright lights and so we're just going to shake and hst announcements are going to fall out of us and some grocers are going to get punched in the head i'm glad they did those things but they've got to up their game in terms of making this come together i have a lot of faith in fraser uh, I don't want to raise expectations and fright the whole guy with the, you know, the future of the party. But I have a lot of faith in his ability to tell that story. The PMO comms team needs to get out of the motherfucking way and permit that story to be told, allow him to put it together and allow them uh, as a government uh, to provide people some assurance that this isn't just something you do when your ass is on fire after two bad polls post Labor Day. Yeah, it's early in the day for me to hear Scott talk about throbbing body parts. But, uh, Corey, um, Scott does have an interesting point here, which is where does Polyev go now, given that the liberal policy is effectively his policy? Um, and they have the capacity to actually do it right now because they're in office. So, you know, perhaps the bigger part of the housing accelerator fund was not the deal with London, but the letter to Calgary. Um and and so, uh, given that existence of that now, where does what is Polyev's opening on this issue now? Well, I think it's to to point out, I think a lack of competence and pull on pull on the threads of this. I could think there are a couple of obvious things. One is, if this is so smart, why didn't you do it uh, a long time ago? You know, this is you know we're years into this housing crisis and. You know, if you look at the, this housing accelerator fund, yeah, it's nice to go out and announce 77 million bucks from it. 
but that's roughly it's a little less than two percent of the money that was committed uh, uh, for this, and and you just haven't done anything with it. So, like, uh, what do you call it when you've done you know used two percent of the money and 98 percent hasn't been used? You, that's not a passing grade. It's not like that was you know fifty two. It means you got lots of cards left in the deck to play, and this uh, game ain't over for two years. Well, you know, uh, but you know what? What is what was what else was that announcement about? It's about uh, subsidy for rental housing, and you know we've talked about this before. I think rental housing, well. That might be an important policy fix. I think it misses the mark politically in terms of of uh, being a vote driver for people who are most concerned about the housing uh, shortage uh, that are politically important to this government. So th those are the middle class folks who are in a condo building or uh, you know in a rental unit or they're renting someplace else, right? But the point is they're renting and they want to buy, and home ownership seems like it's getting further and further away from them, not closer and closer. And so saying, oh, we're going to build a whole bunch more rental housing for you uh, is kind of like, well, you know, did, did you hear me or not? Like, you know, it's a response to a question that wasn't asked. And I think this is is kind of a, kind of an issue. Like, who is that question asked by? Uh, uh, it's asked by, you know, people who are advocates for uh, lower cost housing on the rental market. But that's those are those are stakeholders. Those aren't uh, those aren't voters. So this week is Rail Safety Week. It's a big deal for our sponsor, CN. CN's railroaders are out across the country organizing events in the communities along its network, trying to educate people about how to coexist safely with the titanic machines that roll past their neighborhoods every day. So to help out, dear listeners, we've prepared a little quiz. I hope you find it as informative as I did. Here we go. Question. What do you do if your car stalls on railroad tracks at a crossing? Answer. Don't waste time trying to get it going again. Get everyone out fast and put at least 30 meters between yourself and your vehicle to avoid flying debris. Then call the emergency number posted on signage at the crossing or call 911. Question. How many Canadians are seriously injured or killed in railway crossing or trespassing incidents every year? Answer, more than a hundred. And here's the thing, people. Every single incident is preventable. Railroad tracks aren't places for fun and games, and it's a really bad idea to race a locomotive. Really bad. Question, what is the likelihood that a collision between a train and a motor vehicle will result in loss of life? Answer, a driver who collides with another motor vehicle is more than 40 times more likely to survive than a motorist who collides with a train. Common sense, right? A train is a juggernaut. CN is obsessed with safety and its engineers are highly trained, but they cannot change direction to avoid someone playing chicken. Just don't. Question. Where do most collisions with trains occur? Answer. Within 40 kilometers of the motorist's home, and 60% of collisions happen at crossings with gates, lights, and bells. Let that sink in, folks. Question, how long does it take a train to stop? Answer, about two kilometers. And trains are always moving faster than they appear. Slowness is an illusion. I could go on, but you get the idea. CN is 100% committed to safety. It spends a fortune on technology and training. But nothing can take the place of common sense. Just remember, Tracks are for trains and nothing else. Have a safe week.
<clears throat> Jordan Corhey was getting at how complicated this issue is, okay? How many parts it has. And the fact is, you know, Freeland said yesterday, it's going to take a long time. Like, we're not going to fix this problem by 2025, right? So I want to go back to my, I want to go back to the question I was trying to ask Scott earlier. Like, when you're mm -hmm. thinking this through from the government's point of view, one of the things you have to think about is, like, what are actually are our resources over the next two years that we have available. And, you know, they've got a pretty big deficit. Freeland has been talking about restraint. They're going to be introducing pharmacare, apparently, right? And dental continues to roll out. They have limited fiscal firepower. And surely one of the things they have to be thinking about is how much of it are we going to dump into this housing file for no discernible impact in the electoral time frame versus how much of it do we save for that other issue that will change the change the frame or change the dynamic? Yeah, I think this is a, an excellent question. I have to say what I was really struck by in the housing announcement, both in the in the GST portion and the London announcement, is that there's still there's still nothing in the approach that's touching on the third of Canadians who own a mortgage, who are arguably feeling, other than, than renters who are trying to get into the housing market, this is the second largest group of people who are feeling the most intense pain right now. And I think on that issue, it goes back to, you know, to what, um, what Corey was talking about, the... There is an option for the government to get more involved with the Bank of Canada on interest rates in a variety of ways. And there's a lot of debate that is now coming into the mainstream about what that could look like. And, you know, and I think I think Corey and I would probably differ uh, on how we would do it. But it's interesting that, you know, the government is somewhat surrounded on the issue right now. And the good news for them is that if they want to to wade into this issue. Haven't they been fighting Polyev? Just a second. Haven't they been fighting Polyev for a couple of years now on the fact that he doesn't respect the independence of the Bank of Canada? So yeah, now but that's the a moronic fight. That's a moronic fight and they should drop it because nobody in Canada who's paying a mortgage cares about that. They only care that their variable rate mortgage has now gone up so much that every penny of their monthly payment is going to interest and they've all of a sudden got a 60-year mortgage. That is the only thing people care about. And I think that it's maybe a mental bridge too far for this government to do. I'm not sure that they are going to get there. But the reality is that globally, the idea that monetary policy needs to be completely divorced from the lived reality of people is increasingly falling out of fashion. And there is a need for political buy-in for this. And, and there's a risk right now that we're losing that in Canada. So I do think that the good news for the government here is that if they want to wade in a responsible and measured way to do particularly with the mandate, not about weighing in on individual rate decisions, that, that there's space for them to do that politically. Um, and it doesn't cost them a penny. So this is something that they can do that touches those third of Canadians who so far are completely unanswered by their policy fixes. Yeah, I, like I, I just, I keep coming back to this as being... Um, probably the smartest area and, and also, you know, the correct area uh, for the government to be focusing on. Uh, like if, if we have, you know, a couple percent or two and a half percent or whatever the number is, like let, let all the smart people get out and argue of essentially global inflation, you know, associated with supply chains and, uh, and you know, disruptions uh, due to the war in Ukraine, et cetera. Like whatever that number is, 
you know, you're never you're never going to get Canadian inflation below that. Like it, it's so you could you know send send the Canadian economy into a tailspin if you do this wrong for no discernible purpose. You know, you're punishing people for a crime they didn't commit. And uh, uh, and I think it, it's you know it's something that attacks are going to continue from the right. They're going to continue from the left. They're going to continue uh, from academic sources and the commentariat out there uh, that don't have any any discernible political interest in in this one way or the other. They have an interest in you know the sound management of the economy. I think they're going to get get criticism from all sides. And you know, I, I think even someone like Andrew Coyne might go so far as to say that uh, that. Uh, it's appropriate for the government of Canada to set what the policy benchmarks are around uh, inflation, and then allow the Bank of Canada to uh, uh, to then go about rate increases and do all of that and exercise their implement uh, their independence. But I don't think anybody is going to say that that the government talking about that and saying at least even if you're not going to change it, come out and justify it, explain it to people because there's a lot of people who disagree with you right now. But I think if I were them politically, I would be leaning in the same direction that Jordan and I are on this and a lot of other people are, which is uh, maybe it's time to rethink what that baseline uh, uh, inflation number is that we respond to. But, you know, we'll see. But, I, I, you know, it puts them squarely on the right side of homeowners, which is, uh, you know, existing homeowners that have mortgages, which I think is another big uh, group, and they don't think about this affordability thing in quite the same way as millennials and new Canadians do. They're, they, you know, they have something to protect uh, as opposed to something they aspire to, and uh, both both are very poignant motivators, but a little bit different in their execution, I think. And bonus, unlike all of the things that they're doing in rental housing, it would have an immediate impact. And this is really what's missing in their policy offer so far for the Liberals politically. There's just too long, too long of a lag between the policy and when people are going to feel it. And they've got to close that gap some way. They're, they're in the process of buying political time, probably at great cost from Singh over the next year and a half to two years. So what are they going to do with that time? How are they going to actually get some concrete wins in people's hands in the space of that period? That's the question there. Scott, you know, wow. you, Scott, you you got, I mean, you between your time in finance and PMO, you've got a pretty sophisticated understanding of the relationship between exactly. the government and the Bank of Canada. I'd say that sincerely. I'm not, uh, and and you know, we joked about it last week, but it's no laughing matter. Pierre Trudeau watched Gerald Bowie sink his chances for re-election and didn't do anything to Bowie. Didn't contradict him publicly or yeah. anything. Brian Mulroney watched John Crow sink his chances for re-election. Didn't say anything. Didn't replace Boo, uh, Crow. Didn't tell him to do something different. Um, because that is the understanding of Canadian politics, is that the bank's independent. You let it do its job, how it sees fit. The government does not tell it what to do. And this is seen as a hugely important, inviolable principle of central banks. So how do you feel about the government getting involved with uh, Tiff Macklem now? Um, well, I, I'm not, I'm not as convinced as these guys, um, and maybe you as well, uh, that this is a fight that the government should launch. I'm not convinced that, um, I'm not convinced they should do it. I'm very convinced they would be bad at it. And I'm, I'm relatively convinced that it would be ineffective. I think the only thing that's going to be effective is, and we may be upon this moment naturally, uh, a gradual uh, easing of those interest rates. And I hear all the factors that um, 
Corey's talking about, but those are bets that he's making and assumptions he's making. Um, my assumption is that we're just about at the end of the tightening cycle, and it would be a strange thing for them now to turn and start punching the guy in the head um, as economic conditions are probably going to cause them to start to maybe ease off in the new year. Um, I don't think we're going to see a lot more increases to interest rates. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's a reasonable uh, bet. And I just, I guess everybody's been watching a different movie than me. But if anybody on this panel thinks that Christian Freeland is going to be able to execute an elegant uh, confrontation with the Bank of Canada, um, then uh, I think you're crazy. Because I watched her try to take a bit of uh, uh, a high elbow at the bank uh, around the last interest rate with the prepared statement that came afterwards. And it was clumsy and it was ineffective and it placed her immediately uh, in, in between any place of logic. So she was in no man's land completely with that, with that talking. I just think this government would be very bad at it. I think Freeland in particular would be bad at it. I don't think she's going to be very good at the meeting you're talking about with the grocers, by the way. I think that's also a mistake. Um, I just because I just don't think she's going to want to try to explain what monetary policy is, what the boundaries of the relationship have been traditionally, how they as a government wish to evolve those things, that it's not, not, not about the fact that the government's ass is on fire, that they're not <laughs> contradicting themselves, that these external factors have changed, and that therefore provides them with a coherent logic as to why their message in and around the Bank of Canada and the independence of monetary policy might also need to be modified. It will be a brutal fucking exercise. You're Circling public communication. Large problem. <laughs> well, uh, you know, time out on that though. I, I don't, I don't agree that that's that's bad for them. I think what's happening right now is they're getting outflanked on this issue by uh, a lot of different people. You know, most notably, and I think it started with Polyev, who was the first to be critical. Some people think you know too critical and saying you know fire the bank, uh, governor of the Bank of Canada. You know, may, maybe that is, uh, you know, a, a little too much hot sauce, but like, I think he's been circling in on what the right, right amount of flavoring on that is. And I think that, I think that, uh, so has Singh. But more importantly, I think, uh, a lot of economists and people in academia and people who watch the housing market, a lot of smart people who don't have a political horse in this race are also talking about this. And it increasingly looks like, uh, the government is less and less, uh, you know, is more and more detached from reality and less and less actually engaging on something that is a part of, uh, you know, a larger discussion that's going on. I don't I think, think you guys are confusing. The, I don't think that having the government say on a policy basis, you know, where the fence posts are around, you know, the overall management of the economy and having that be in, in the hands of democratically elected officials is a bad thing. I think that's actually, you know, you could argue well, fundamentally one good. I go hunting in different ways. Let me just say, that, can I just, I'll, I have one small thing, David, in reply to all that. I really think that, again, this is a nose too close to the window pane issue. I think we are confusing how important it is. Uh, I think we're confusing the importance of what politicians say about interest rates with the importance of interest rates. I think the problem the government has is not what it says about the central bank. I think the problem is that interest rates are higher. And their bet has to be that if interest rates come down, some of their problems will start to ease and they will have a chance to move the dr6 i don't believe they'll do much by bitching about high interest rates i don't think they're going to do a lot by attacking the central bank i don't actually believe that's been the secret of polyev's success and so i i and i think the government if it attempted to do it will it craven and will be terrible at it and it will be a complicated messy 
shittiest TED talk in the history of TED talks. So I would, I'd go look and elsewhere. The other thing I would bear in mind is a sort of an overarching thought for the liberals is if their objective over the next couple of years is to have Canadians conclude that Poiliev is too risky for a variety of reasons um, to have the job, then they need to appear to be safe hands. And so while, you know, we've been arguing for them to be more active, etc., I would be careful about going out and picking a fight with everybody and seeming like you were constantly embroiled in external battles like that because that doesn't give the impression of safe hands. And I, yeah. where I, I think that logic is deadly. Like the the issue here is that it puts the liberals in the position of defending the status quo that's punishing Canadians every month. They are left holding the bag, whether they want to or not. That's the end result, right? Well, and they kind of I, have to hope that it works out over two years, that rates are down and inflation a, is... And that's a big gamble, right? Like, And, and I, think, I think that the challenge here is that when they aren't out there setting parameters to advocate for a, for a different way of doing things in whatever way they want to do that, be it around what the target rate is or the mandate, uh, you know, which by the way has been modified before to include employment, right? So this is not in any way unprecedented. I think, I think the argument about saying that any interference in the Bank of Canada is somehow not safe or not competent or not safe hands is that it, that mixes up the question of competence with the question of motivation and, and motivation and, and why Polyev does what he does and in whose interest he works. That is what the liberals need to get at. But mm -hmm. sort of a checklist of, of safe, competent policies is not going to protect them. And, and I think that actually it's, it's a bit that thinking that has led them down the, this path where they've been cornered into protecting the status quo, which the majority of Canadians feel is not serving them right now. Yeah, right. but well, all of this is based on the premise that if they attack the Bank of Canada, there'll be political benefit. They, they in it. And don't, I don't believe that's true. They don't have to attack. Like, I think that's way too binary an option. But, you know, even when we have seen somebody attack the Bank of Canada, because I think you could argue at, at different points in this narrative, uh, both the uh, uh, main opposition parties, or, well, the, uh, the one opposition party and the partner in government uh, party, uh, have uh, been, uh, you know, being critical. And I don't think they've been punished for that. I think they've been rewarded for it, I, particularly Polyev. So, and I think it's it's all about the motive stuff that Jordan talked about. I think she's bang on the money there. Um, but it's also appropriate uh, for the government to set what the, what, the, what the policy parameters are. All right. I just think, you know, it's a caution to the, the, this group on this call, on this zoom meeting that you don't want to blow all your money and all your stuff and all your on 2023's top issue when you're heading toward an election in 2025 jordan you sure, want to say something but, i know but, but they're but, but they're not right like the stuff that <laughs> jordan saying, and i are talking blowing? about they're, they're not they're not they're, they're not, not doing they're, anything <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not. It's not. Cost, it doesn't cost them a penny to yeah. to talk about some of these things in an empathetic way or look like they're pushing right. in that direction. And like, what's the cost of the grocery thing? It's it's zero. That's what's right. the cost of what we're talking about around interest rates in the bank account? It's zero. 
you know, and in terms of the housing stuff, the seven, you know, the two percent of the fund that they announced a year ago is now being spent. So they got ninety eight percent of that left that's already budgeted. Um, you know, I I, I think you I know think some of these things are not costing. You know, they're and, and they're, David, they're signaling intent. To your earlier point about what are they going to do in this area, this era of self-imposed austerity, right? Their options are limited on this. And I think that there's maybe a little too much of the bias towards caution, of the bias towards status quo thinking that is that is going to get them into trouble. And it's that thinking over a pattern of years that has led them to where they are today, which is what the actions that seem so minor now seem too radical eight years ago, six years ago, five years ago, and now they're in real trouble. So while I agree with you, we can't predict what what the what the issue is going to be. We do know that it's likely going to do with people's pocketbooks, right? So that's a pretty safe bet. And and I think that what the what the PMO needs to focus on now is a bias towards action on these things. All right. Well, how how about this for a narr narrative? You know, which government is out of steam, out of ideas, and disconnected from the reality of your daily life, and which one is actually you know leaning in the direction of you know what the priorities are for you? I think that's a version of that is really what the the, the Polyev narrative uh, is. And when you've got you know two thirds, more than two thirds, seventy percent. What is the number right now in terms of people who want to change in government? This in the seventies, eighties. I know that eighties. So 70. even more. So you know. That's that's what the issue is. Less, oh, I the, others are, that. the others are the others are proof points that uh, you know that are used to you know demonstrate uh, that case. But you know the overall narrative and the ballot question for Polyev, I think, is 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 as as clear as uh, it could possibly be. It's time for a change, and and who's on your side versus who's on the side of uh, the gatekeepers and the status quo. Yeah, but I All don't right, think Jay, you're quick because we got to move on. Go ahead. Well, I, I just, I, I'll go back to it. Um, I think they need to play cards. I think they need to do things. I particularly think they need to persuade people that um, that they have a plan that's going to address the real needs of real people. And I don't think they've done that even with these measures. I don't think they've told their story. And I don't think they've given themselves a, 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 a an arc that allows them to reinforce and tell that story over and over and over again. So uh, all of that, I I don't think David or I are preaching inactivity. Um I'm just not convinced they'll be credible or capable of pulling off a, you know what, it's uh, it's time we're going to start kicking around the Bank of Canada. We're going to start telling them what to do. We're going to change where the goalposts are on monetary policy. I just don't think that's the, I don't think that will be effective and I don't think they'll be good at it. I would look for activity elsewhere. Well, it's a lot of, at the moment, it feels like a lot of tactics without a strategy, Scott. That's my core bitch. Right. Okay. So Quickly, we don't have a ton of time for this, but by God, it was a big piece. And uh, we're talking about our clipping of the week and Shannon Proudfoot's um, profile of the historic Katie Telford, the longest serving chief of staff in modern Canadian politics. Massive article that by and large, she should be happy with, I would think, and had the added benefit of telling me what my internal nickname was in the 2015 campaign, which I had not known. Um, and uh, so here's an excerpt from the, uh, from the clipping. At this point, got a check with Katie is basically a Parliament Hill magical incantation. She is the quiet voice that carries, the last person in the room, a first name only Ottawa main character. Some prime ministers have employed their chiefs of staff as mercenaries for specific moments and replaced them when the situation demanded something different. 
Others have held their chiefs close for years as trusted consigliaries. Katie Telford has outlasted them all. At first, this government presented itself very self-consciously as an ensemble cast. There was Justin and Jerry and Katie and Kate and Mike and Bill and Christy and Jody and Jane and all the rest. Though the top of the marquee was always Mr. Trudeau, his principal secretary, Gerald Butts, and Miss Telford. The years have peeled away almost the entire original gang. Some took more layers of skin with them than others. Now it's only Justin and Katie left. At this point, as the polls clobber the Liberals and they can't seem to shake a staggering inertia, Miss Telford's longevity is evidence of the depth of Mr. Trudeau's reliance on her, not a sign that her clock is running down. At the very moment when it's crucial to get some fresh perspective, the same qualities that make Mr. Trudeau and Ms. Telford so valuable to each other, the comfort and constancy, the unwavering degree to which they have each other's backs, is precisely what might not be serving them well anymore. Scott, just as a little background for our listeners, can you tell us how does a story like this come together? Well, um, you know, you got a reporter like Shannon Proudfoot. First of all, I should start by saying I love Shannon Proudfoot. I adore her writing. I lap it up the way a bear laps up honey. It's always delicious. It's always fun and sumptuous. Um, I'm just a giant fan of hers. Uh, and she's a great reporter, a great person. It's, it starts with somebody like Shannon Proudfoot, who people recognize instantly is not the kind of person who's looking to do a butcher job. Isn't you know She's going to discover, uncover a narrative. It will be fair it will be influenceable so once she indicates she's writing it then everybody has to make decisions do we participate or not and how do we so who talks who doesn't all that sort of stuff so then katie says first thing is i'm not going to talk it looks inappropriate for me to participate in a, in a profile about myself plus i have notwithstanding my confidence that shannon's a fair person no idea where this thing goes it could end up concluding that i have outlived my uh best before date and i need to leave and i don't want to be in a piece where i'm sort of having to effectively say no 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 no! i'm still relevant i still rock don't get like don't 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 drive away i'm still here so i think that's smart then you sort of say well who do you license up uh who are you know i know that they're going to talk to these number of people they're going to ask for some folks who are around they may or may not ask for people in the personal life you decide who you want to license and who you don't want to license you probably take somebody in the prime minister's office if you're katie who's not you to say all right you you be the Sherpa for this piece. You had man it in terms of working with Shannon to figure out who gets facilitated. And then you, you know, you sort of, and, and then it's out of your hands, man. And because you don't know who she's going to talk to, you know, who's going to say awful things and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, um, that's how it comes together. And, you know, I would just say, like, I don't really know what to conclude from this piece other than they're eight years into the government. You went into a national caucus with a bunch of people bitching and moaning and it was time to go. And, you know, they usually shoot arrows at the staff before they point them directly at the king. Uh, you know, the, the, and, um, and it's a pretty good piece. It's a pretty sound and fair piece. It went to great lengths to exhibit, uh, what people admired about her in 2015, what they've admired about her since. And it makes the consistent point of interesting, eh? Like she's outlasted and outwitted everyone else and she's still there. And um, there's obviously some unique relationship between them. And so like this far in, uh, like that's not a bad piece. The fundamental question remains, is she going to remain in office until Trudeau leaves? And the answer is, yeah, she is. Like that, if, if, if that isn't going to be 
turn out to be true, then we have no evidentiary basis to to reach that conclusion. So it is what it is. Jordan, what did you learn from this piece? So I also, I thought it was a really good piece and I love Shannon Pemphitt's writing. So I was really happy when you picked this one. Um, what did I learn? I think I learned that um, I was actually surprised at some of the tidbits about the degree of Katie's involvement in day-to-day -day things that would not be considered major because of course that's spoken of frequently, but I think, you know, the example that was given in the story about the, the PM being briefed for call for a minister's senior staffer, and then the staffer being tipped out about the outcome of like that, it sounds bonkers to me. Right. So I think for me, um, I was struck at just the, really the, the concrete examples of that high degree of centralization. And I was also struck by the lack of mention about fatigue. Um, and I think it's a factor uh, that we've talked about a lot with respect to the team around Trudeau and this government. And it's really difficult to understate how exhausting it is to be in those roles for the length of time that they have been in those roles. And I'm I pretty to... beat down and tired. And all I do is talk <laughs> about them. I don't have to do what they do. <laughs> It's like living in the crucible, you know, and and I think I think that that uh, for me is is maybe a factor that wasn't explored as much as it could be. And the other thing that I learned or that underlined a thought that that I and many others have already had is is that, well, Katie clearly brings very strong operational strengths to the to the office um, that there is still a, a, a big gap there. Uh, on broader strategy, on communications, on narrative that that hasn't been filled. And so I think to you know to that uh, degree, the story really reinforced that narrative out there that the PMO has suffered uh, since Butt's departure on that level. And I think that's borne out in their performance. Um, and and I I would also echo I I think that the fact that coming out of that caucus retreat and by the way I'm still not as ready to give props for like basic caucus management as as maybe you guys are because if if people came out of that retreat still griping like that's really bad so like the bar is that you come out like that's basic competence basic caucus management that you come out with no public gripes so I I still don't think that extra cookies are to be awarded for that but. Well, it's but not a Liberal Caucus circa 2002, <laughs> that is for sure. Sure, sure. Yeah. But is that the bar we want to use? You know? so, <laughs> yeah, that's the question to ask, right? But but yeah, I I, I was struck at uh, at the fact that, that people are not coming for her publicly from inside the tent. And that is significant because it is always, and certainly this is true within the NDP, this is true within every party, it is staffers' heads that are served up on platters first. And so the fact that even though she is such... Yeah, you think Mulroney wanted to fire his best friend, Bernard Waugh, for, as being principal secretary? No, he did it because he had no. to, because people were coming for him. That's right. right. And so the fact that even though she's such a public figure, that that has not happened yet, to me, speaks to enduring capacity and the fact that people still see a strong value for her in the organization. And I also, based on this piece and other... I don't think she's going anywhere. So the question that I have coming out of it is are the folks in the PMO, and obviously this would have to come from Katie, uh, and, you know, are they going to add something? Are they going to add someone to the bunker to hopefully crack open the windows a little bit, get some fresh air in there, 
uh, because that is sorely needed. Um, and, and so for me, that's the question I had coming out of it, but I thought it was a great piece. Mm. Uh, j- just on the, on the setting up and journalism and stuff like that. And, you know, when you, I heard what Jordan just said around, uh, not a lot of uh, sharp criticism in the piece. I'm going to, I'm going to point to, uh, that, She's been really lucky that it was Shannon Proudfoot that did this, uh, who I think uh, has kind of like a Walter I- Isaacson kind of approach to to doing these kinds of stories. You know, the two two Globe journalists who have done those kinds of profile pieces of political folks over the years, uh, she's by far the best of them. But, you know, uh, if you're looking at like Redwanski, who uh, I remember shepherding one of these things through on our friend Jenny, uh, which was just rumors, innuendo, cheap shots, you know, anonymous smears kind of bullshit. Uh, and uh, Jane Tabor before uh, Rudwanski did a lot of these. And I think they were a lot more gossipy uh, in their in their tone. And and look, I, I probably like Jane more than than you guys do, or maybe I do. I don't know. But like a, as a person, I think she's she's a fun person to, to go uh, have a conversation with. Um but, you know, it, it, both, you know, would be more gossipy. I think Rudwanski gossipy with like a, you know, a sort of acidic tone. Um, so I think she's lucky and um, uh, that it came across that way. I've heard the, the you know, uh, you know, Jerry's the, the storyteller and, and, uh, and the narrative guy. I'm not sure that he would describe it that way. I think, uh, I think it's more, you know, there were co-CEOs of, uh, uh, Trudeau land uh, when he was around and and maybe you know like I, I guess I would say two heads are always better than one and especially if Jerry Butts is one of those heads because I think he's an you know an incredibly smart person that's not to take anything away from Katie I think anyone who's been in that job as long as she she has is obviously very skilled but you know in my experience it's it, leadership team uh, is is better than uh, leadership person and and organizations on the political side that have a leadership team and and I'll point to you guys right like I I think one of the um, the great strengths of the Martin team was that it was a team and uh, uh, and there was a, a range of people who could keep in touch with their own networks of people who could uh, pressure test ideas against each other uh, to come up with stuff that's better uh, I think that's often the ingredient it's and it's less about you know this person had this you know area specialty and this person had this area specialty and everyone respected those lines and you know uh the media management for paul martin was good because scott was there and he's really good at that and the strategy was good because hurley's there yeah like there there may be an element of that but i think the sum is always greater than the parts when it comes to to political leadership teams and uh and maybe that's the the larger point uh, and I think, you know, we saw this uh, with uh, with Harper. You know, I've seen this with, you know, many different leaders. I saw this sort of in the, the end days of Mike Harris, too, you know, where the, the leadership team gets, you know, gets gets uh, smaller and smaller over time. And the amount of pressure testing and heads around the table decreases. And that and that that's part of what creates that that fatigue that Jordan was talking about. So I I, I don't I, I I don't know I wouldn't feel bad about that piece if I were Katie. I think it's you know it's fairly flattering as these things go. But you know if you're asking what what do I think the you know the core takeaway that I got from that was is is they're going through that that same arc that I've seen in other places where it's fewer people around the table. 
Um, you know, I, I've, I've got a lot of time for Ben Chin. You know, I've uh, worked with him on a number of files over, over the years, and I, I think he's very smart guy. Um, but, you know, I think it, it might be true that earlier point about there was a marquee of people and there were a lot of people. And now there's fewer people and and uh, and and that that's maybe what's driving some of that uh, uh, that sort of tired motif. My my uh, my complaint about any there's uh, the only couple times anybody ever tried to do a profile on me. My complaint wasn't the gossipy journalist or the acidic minded editor. It was um, the inclination of the people writing to tell the truth and to repeat report <laughs> accurate anecdotes. That really was what sunk me. Um, I, I'll, I'll say one more thing about this. I think one other reason I think Katie should be happy about this, and one thing I think that's it's it's interesting about the the way the Trudeau guys have approached things from the word go is, uh, and we're often critical. I'm particular. I'll put it on me. I'm often critical of the way that they will manage a media, um, you know, the the give and take around media and trying to frame a storyline and all that stuff. But they have always understood the importance of branding and they've understood branding and marketing and, and they've placed enormous emphasis on that. And then you look at this piece, I'll bet you the one thing that Katie really did, well, I'm going to try to control this and I do care about this, is that she invested once again when there's a public discussion about her in that idea of being a data person. Like it's if you look at the things that people have written over the years, you always see the sort of same variations on the same stories about how she's so data driven, and she's to, she's clearly made a choice that that is right how she wishes to be defined in the public arena as a professional practitioner. Um, that and and I think you know and and you, that comes through again. So she's got to be pleased with that. With all the smoke and fog of contemporary political jockeying you know she gets that out again and that i think is evidence of how uh, laser focused they are on branding even when it comes to themselves as opposed to the boss um and that being said if i went into a room and someone began a meeting by saying what's your number to me i would say my number is nine my number is nine. I would say ten because that's what Guy Lafleur wore, and that's what Andre Dawson wore. And now, fuck off! I'm leaving this room. I am not having Step back away from the line. What is your number? Right. Well, I guess to wrap this up, I would just say that the story about the departure of butts from this government and not being brought back and not being replaced is probably the biggest untold story about why this government is where it is and how it ended up here. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll await another journalist to uncover that uh, story for us. All right, we're at that time. Gordon Pinsent, are you around, Mr. Pinsent? Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. The hey yous are about to begin. Okay, who's going to start the hey yous? Jordan, go. I got one. Yeah, yeah, you know it. I got one. <laughs> I know you do. So my hey you this week is going out to Heather Stephenson, Blaine Higgs, Doug Ford, uh, and Danielle Smith, and any other politician of the center-right who feels like they have a strong desire to dabble in the far-right. Because this week, there's going to be nationwide protests uh, anti-trans protests, protests against LGBTQ inclusion in school curriculums, and all manner of things like that. And what I say to you is this. 
the people who are organizing these protests are associated with far-right conspiracy theorists, anti-COVID folks. These are people who are Christian nationalists. Is a whole basket of folks that are not helpful for you. And there will be a strong temptation to double down on the awful policies that you have already announced that target children. And so I implore you, both from the perspective of it being the wrong policy that is harmful and is frankly just lazy, lazy politics uh, to step away from the issue, but also for your own good, that dallying with these people will come to no good ends for you. And to progressives, I would also say it is so important this week to declare where progressives stand on this issue and to say that this will not be an issue that is going to be used as a political football and that the right wants to talk about bathrooms and scaremongering and misinformation, but you need to be talking about making Canadians' lives more affordable. So make your position clear, but don't be sucked in. And that's my hey you this week. All right. Scott? All right. Well, desk thump to Jordan. Um, mine will not top hers or compete with hers, and it's not as important. Um, I'm going to go back to our discussion on housing, and I'm going to do something that's manifestly unfair. I'm going to play so sliding doors, you know, the beating of a butterfly's wings and how the time might have unfolded. It's inaccurate and unfair to suggest that one decision might have changed the way a whole mass of complicated policy like housing unfolded. But with this weekend's decision to drop the HS, uh, the GST on, on rental housing, you have to ask yourself, well, what's the story as to why that didn't occur eight years ago? And the answer is and must be that despite the fact they ran on this idea and they pronounced themselves on this idea, once in office, the finance department officials got a hold of the finance minister, the newly minted Bill Morneau, who never meant never met right, a, a creature of conventional wisdom that he didn't want to wrap his arms around and say, yes, yes, yes. And they killed that idea. And they, you know, must have, you know, I mean, we heard this in bits and pieces and stories. Well, you know, they argued at the time that there were alternatives that would be more effective. Well, actually not so fucking much as it turns out. And I know that it's probably blatantly untrue that if we'd had that measure in place eight years ago, that the world would be completely different now, but it'd be a bit different, right? There would have been a greater financial incentive for builders to keep building uh, rental housing. There would have been less of a focus on let's pre-sell every fucking condo on earth that we can and overbuild on condos and then make certain that we tracked all that foreign investment. And then, you know, it takes us further and further away from uh, housing for people and more for investments. I think it would have perverted the market. It would have allowed a lot less perversity in the marketplace that we're trying to clean up now. So my hey used to Bill Morneau in the finance department of eight years ago. You guys shit the bed. <laughs> Mic well, drop. Uh, yes, there we go. Uh, well, those ne those Nepo baby uh, 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 who uh, inherit their dad's company tend to be very in favor of conventional wisdom. So I'm not I'm not shocked <laughs> at that. Um, here, here. My, my my, uh, my hey you. Yeah, but when Jerry going, put him there, Jerry knew he could move him around. It was only you know yeah yeah. Yeah, you know, there's probably some of that. Um, my hey you is going to go to Manitoba to uh, Premier Heather Stephenson. Uh, I'm uh, we were get, we didn't quite get get around to chatting about uh, about it this week, but uh, 
I think it's going to be a really interesting, really close race there. And I think affordability is a a big issue in Manitoba too, and trying to uh, find things to talk about there. So my hey you to Heather Stephenson would be, you might want to get in on some of the action that that Doug Ford and and Premier Eby have had around what we were talking about earlier around interest rates. I think there's uh, there's some cover for other people who are having that conversation. And I think it's a, I think it's a good one. And I think, uh, it's, uh, the kind of thing that, uh, would be helpful for your campaign. So my, Hey, you is, Hey, Hey, Heather, uh, hop in on, uh, uh, on that issue. I think the water's quite warm. Yeah, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's right. Uh, listen, my, you know, my, my, Hey, you, my, Hey, you goes out to Mark Kearney. Uh, and it's like, Hey man, jump in. Like, do it. Like, uh, you got opinions about this stuff. You're now going public. You're giving interviews. You're giving speeches. Jump in and help out. Uh, there's no doubt you could help. And, you know, you've got to develop some skills in this game, too. Like, this thing last weekend, make that the last one of those. Nobody needs to find out anymore that you can convince Tony Blair or somebody else of a progressive world leader of your point of view. We need to find out if you can convince people in Peel uh, of your point of view. And so get in the game, get in the business, make a difference. And uh, this is this is the moment. The government needs ideas and new energy. You've got it. Bring it. Let's have it. Hundo, Hundo P. Hundo P. Canada needs Carney. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's our show for uh, that's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, TELUS, and our sponsor, CN Rail. I'd like to thank the three of you for being here. It was a lot of fun, raucous meeting uh, this week. And everybody who watched or listened will be back next week with more of the curse of politics. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. See you then.